famous quote up on the screen, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. And I wonder what you think about that, that sentiment. Is it true? Does history bear that out? I guess as we look back through history, we think of men like Stalin, like Hitler, Mugabe, I guess we could go on and on. Men who've risen to seats of power and then abused that power and have been responsible for horrific atrocities. And I guess the, the, the fruit of centuries of dictatorships and abuse of authority is a society now with widespread, deep-rooted mistrust of those in authority. And social commentators are genuinely concerned about that in the West. And we've seen that borne out in the political sphere in recent months here in the UK, just in the lead-up to the election. Again and again, questions came up. Can we trust our politicians? And again, that was heightened with the expenses scandal which served to put our respect and trust levels at an all-time low. Can we trust David Cameron to do our country good? Well, my guess is that, um, that when our trust in those in authority is put to test on a national scale like that, we probably don't lose too much sleep worrying about it. But when it comes closer to home, well, that's, a, that's another story. When we find ourselves asking, can we really trust those in authority over us at work or at school, then it's a bit different, isn't it? Trust and authority become very real, live issues to us. Just this week, my colleague, who is um, actually past retirement age, uh, is considering suing for constructive dismissal. She's lost all trust and respect for her boss and she's convinced that she's being forced out. And I've heard countless stories of companies firing committed, hard-working staff so they can save having to pay out expensive redundancy packages. And I guess all of us here could could think of examples of misuse of authority and power like that in the workplace. At best, these experiences cause us to, to think twice before we trust those in authority over us. And at worst, they feed in to this deep-rooted mistrust of, of all forms of authority. Well, let's think about it on, on the flip side of this and put yourself in the sensible shoes of, of one of our teachers. Daily facing unruly jobs with no respect for authority, if we believe what we read in the Daily Mail. Some people argue that, that actually our, our teachers, uh, our children, sorry, are culturally conditioned to have no respect for authority. Films and t TV portray authority in negative ways by and large. The establishment or the, the authority is nearly always portrayed as big brother who's out to get and crush and harm the hero of the story. And in reality, you just switch on the news, 
and you see journalists with their investigative questioning always attacking and assuming the worst of the people that they're interviewing, the politicians that they're interviewing, always assuming that there's something that they're trying to hide as they get into them. Now, whilst some of those arguments may be true, um, that's probably for another discussion. But, uh, but perhaps the, the, the most serious and most damaging misuses of power and authority occur not in the political or professional or academic sphere, but in the home, within the family. When the sacred position of trust and authority in a parent-child relationship is violated, that abuse is the most horrific and damaging of all. And tragically, it's all too prevalent in our city, in our nation and in our world. And I guess that the weight of all this misuse of power gives rise to a lack of trust of those in authority. Now, is this loss of trust in authority, is it irretrievable and irreversible? Some argue that, that actually it is, it's, it's got it's gone too far. But I hope that it's not. I, for one, mourn the loss of trust in authority. Because when authority is exercised and responded to as, as God intended it to, it's a very, very good thing. And I think as, as Christians today, we have an opportunity to, to stand apart from the world's understanding and experience of authority to model and live out lives marked by a different type of authority that is an authority that is shaped by the gospel and has the Lord Jesus Christ right at the heart and that's what we're going to be looking at this morning as we come to this section in in Colossians chapter 3 those of you, most of you probably know, we've been, we've been going through Colossians in recent weeks. Uh, one more to go next week. Um, but uh, where have we got to so far? Essentially, Paul's writing to a group of Christians that he's not met personally, but yet a group of Christians he prays fervently for. We learn that, that, that they learned the Gospel from Epaphras in chapter 1, verse 17. And I remember when I was a teenager um, finding out that uh, a sharp ape is a perfect anagram of Epaphras. I don't know why I'm saying that, but it just helped. It always sticks in my head. So anyway, they learned the gospel from Epaphras and it seems that they were leaders within the church, not from outside the church. Leaders from within the church who were effectively teaching that Jesus is not enough. And uh, we've seen over the weeks that Paul is is quick to point out how futile and dangerous it is to to add other things to the Gospel. He says they are a pale shadow of the reality that is found in Christ. So central to this book is the fact that, that Jesus Christ is utterly supreme, utterly sufficient, that he is all. And as Paul does in in all his New Testament letters, 
he moves on from theology to lifestyle. Theology to, to practice. Those two always go hand in hand. Because for Paul, the Christian faith is, is an everyday faith. A faith that is practical, that has to work its way out in the nitty-gritty of our day-to-day lives. Now this morning we're going to look at uh, the section from verse 18 uh, down to the end of the chapter. And this section is actually no stranger to controversy. Uh, Paul's been labelled as a um, misogynistic woman-hater by both non-Christians and Christians alike. And I've been to a fair few weddings recently where uh, these words or or words from the parallel passage in Ephesians 5 are are read out and you see kind of glaring looks from husbands and wives as they nudge each other as these words are coming out and scowls and giggles kind of murmur around. These words were written in the first century. Surely we can just take them with a pinch of salt, can't we? I mean, 21st century, times have changed, haven't they? These teachings can't be binding now, can they? Well, the New Testament, and Paul in particular, it's clear that these are not instructions for a particular time and place in history, but actually these are timeless principles for us to live by. In the parallel passage in Ephesians, Paul roots his his teaching about male headship in creation. Actually saying that that this is is God's design from the beginning. He also likens Christ's relationship with the church to to the man and uh, woman in marriage. Again, showing that these are not just a set of teaching for a particular time and place, but actually these are binding, um, eternal truths. Well, that being the case, somehow this teaching does grate with us. It doesn't sit comfortably with us at times. And it's, it's something that is almost vaguely embarrassing sometimes when we're talking about this with others, maybe with non-Christian friends or family when they, when they bring it up. We can feel it just jars a bit with us as, as we talk about it. Well, why does it grate like that? What is it that makes this teaching difficult to take on board? Well, one of the main reasons is the lack of trust in authority that we have been conditioned to take on, that we've been thinking about already. So when we see words like authority and submission, we automatically jump to conclusions of what that means and what that looks like in practice. And I want us to to work through the misconceptions that we have about what Paul means. Because we, we can have a wrong understanding of what submission means, just like we can have a wrong understanding of what authority is really all about. So as we look at this, uh, this chunk in, in Colossians, the first thing we see is that there are three sets of pairs in what uh, Paul sets out. And in each set there is instructions for the one who is subject to authority. 
and there are instructions for the one who is in the position of authority as well. A similar pattern throughout the New Testament in, in, with verses like this. So we're going to go through and unpack what Paul teaches to each. So first of all, wives and husbands. Verse 18, Paul says, Wives, submit to your husband. Notice he doesn't say, obey your husbands. The word he uses in verse uh, 18 is different to the word that he uses for children in verse 20, or slaves in verse 22. Children, obey your parents. Slaves, obey your masters. But wives are to submit to their husbands. And actually this is a verse that has been much misunderstood and misused throughout history. Husbands have abused their wives and abused this verse in order to dominate and oppress their wives. Communities even have have used this in such a way as to repress the women in that community. Paul does not say obey but submit. And he doesn't say, husbands, force your wives to submit. And this was radical teaching at the time. And it's radical teaching for us here today, now too. Because the world says that submission equals weakness and oppression. But the Bible says, Submission is real strength and real choice. And actually our ultimate example of of both of those things is Jesus himself. Think back to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus' prayer. Knowing the unspeakable agony of what was about to happen to him and what was to come and all that was the cross held for him, Jesus willingly chose to submit himself to the will of his Father. Was that weakness? By no means. Was he forced to do it against his will? By no means. Make no mistake about it, he chose the cross. Submission in scripture is not weakness and oppression. It is real strength and a conscious act of your will. So, does this mean that, um, that wives are to submit to whatever a husband wishes? Well, notice what Paul says. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. So, just as in Romans we are instructed to submit to authorities only as, as far as is compatible with our allegiance to to God first and foremost. So wives are to submit to their husbands as is fitting in the Lord. But this verse shouldn't be taken in isolation. It shouldn't be taken on its own or out of context. It's part of of a pair. Wives submit to husbands who love. Husbands, love your wives, verse 19. The word Paul uses there is agape. It's it's sacrificial love. 
that Paul is talking of. Nothing sentimental. Sacrificial love. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Is what Paul says in Ephesians. Now the husband um, is, is head of the marriage. He's the one in authority. And again, the world says authority equals power. The Bible says authority equals responsibility and costly sacrifice. Authority in the Bible is not about power. The authority a husband has is better described as a responsibility to provide, to care for, to protect and to seek the good of his wife. It's about seeking her good before your own. It's about putting her first. It's about being willing and prepared to love her sacrificially. How did Christ fulfil his responsibility for the church? How did he seek her ultimate good even when it was costly to him? Well, he gave himself up for her. He bled and he died in her place, taking the punishment she deserved on himself. So do you see, there's, there's a beautiful symmetry here. Wives to willingly submit to sacrificial servant leadership from their husbands. So what does this look like in, in practice? Well, it means wives... Don't use emotional blackmail to manipulate your husband to do what you want. Husbands, don't be harsh, Paul says. Literally, don't make them bitter, either by powerful domination or by passive neglect. Actually, a a passive husband is just as likely to cause the bitterness that will eat away at the heart of a wife and a marriage as an overbearing husband. Husbands, we need to be making sure that we are active in our leadership. That we are actively taking responsibility and taking that responsibility seriously. It means taking the initiative when it comes to resolving conflict. It means taking the initiative when it comes to a spiritual life and direction too. It means that our wives shouldn't be the ones who are taking the initiative when it comes to making sure we're praying together. That our wives aren't the ones who are always the ones who are booking up the family holidays and that kind of thing. So a question for us to, to think about. How do I make it easy for my wife and my husband to fulfil their God-given role? That's the question. How do you make it easy for the other to fulfil their God-given role? I guess for those of us who aren't married and, and thinking about marriage or looking to the future, women, make sure you're looking for someone who will love you in this Christ-like way 
in this Christ-like, self-sacrificial way. Well, for, I guess there's loads we could say about this, but um, for more practical help and advice on this stuff, you can't beat the book of Proverbs, actually. So I'd encourage you to go away and, uh, and study that book together and think all about dripping taps and sitting on the corner of your roof and all the rest of it. So husbands and wives. And next, children and, and parents. And actually we get the same symmetry here. Children, obey your parents. The word is, is different to submit. It's, it's literally about hearing and doing. And it's interesting that, that Paul doesn't say Parents, make sure your children obey you. He says, children. And that's really interesting, isn't it? He, Paul expects that children will be in the gathering when the letter is, is read out to the church. Interesting. And he says uh, that actually obedience pleases the Lord. But again, there's this symmetry because children are to obey parents who are seeking to encourage and grow their children. So fathers, he says in verse 21, again that term means, can mean both father and mother. Don't embitter, exasperate, provoke your children to bitterness. Because a child's heart is an extremely precious and fragile thing. And parents, you have a divine responsibility. There's that word again, responsibility to nurture and encourage your children. Lest they become discouraged and lose heart. And a child can lose heart, get that kind of empty feeling of worthlessness in a number of ways. Perhaps through being bullied by over, overbearing, overpowering parents. Perhaps through being neglected. Perhaps through inconsistent parenting. One day they say one thing, next day they say something different. Perhaps through hypocritical parenting. Parents tell me one thing and then go and do something else. Perhaps it's through feeling they have to earn their parents' love and that they'll never be able to do it. I guess we could, we could go on and on and think of different ways that children can lose heart in that way. And it is hard work, I'm sure. And especially when you're tired at the end of the day, it's just all too easy to give in because you just want some peace. But Paul says to, to parents that they are to bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. He's saying that, that our parenting needs to be shaped by the gospel itself. It needs to be pointing our children to Jesus for forgiveness and for hope and for life. So when our four-year-old is having a tantrum in the middle of Tesco's, what's our primary concern? 
I guess if we're, if we're honest, perhaps it's what other people are thinking of us. We want them to shut up so people don't think we're a terrible parent. But what Paul is saying here is that our primary concern needs to be on leading our children to Jesus, modelling grace to them. And we mentioned earlier uh, that the loss of respect of authority that we see in schools and in young people. So here's a question for us. How, how, how are you contributing and shaping your child's view of authority? How is your parenting shaping their view of authority? There's a new book that's uh, come out by um, Ed Moll and Tim Chester called Gospel-Centred Family, uh, which I would heartily recommend to you. You can actually download a sample of it from, from the internet. Um, so yeah, they'll be able to unpack this stuff much more um, clearly and effectively than I just have. So wives and husbands, children and fathers, and, and finally slaves and masters. So Paul uh, finally addresses slaves and masters and first of all we need to get out of our heads that the notion of slavery that immediately floods into our minds when we see the word come up on a, on a page like this. In the first century it was a completely different notion than the horrific uh, racial transatlantic slavery that, that Wilberforce and others fought long and hard to abolish. Slavery in, in this context at this time was actually often um, a willing choice on behalf of the slave. Working conditions and life um, styles could actually be pretty good. And slaves often held positions of real responsibility within a household. You just have to think earlier in, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, think of Joseph in, in Potiphar's household and, and others. And some are actually shocked that the New Testament is seemingly silent on the issue of slavery. But we've seen already, as we've gone through the book of Colossians, that uh, Paul asserts in no uncertain terms that a slave is no less important in terms of salvation than anyone else in society. Just look at verse 11 of chapter 3. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. So given that that was the, the situation in the, in the context that Paul's writing to, I think we can legitimately draw parallels between workers and bosses uh, from what Paul says to, to slaves and masters here. And again, we see that symmetry in what he calls us to. Workers, he says, are to work with complete integrity. Masters are to ensure that they provide justly and, and fairly and fulfil their responsibilities. Again, there's that word, with their workers. And notice Paul says workers are to work equally as hard when the boss is watching as when they're not watching. Why? Because as a Christian, your ultimate boss is the Lord Jesus. 
And whatever we do, we're to do it for him, as if working for him. So how are you doing on that score? And stories, there's a famous story, I don't know quite where it came from, of a Victorian maid who became a Christian and she was asked how she would prove it that she became a Christian. Interesting question to ask. But anyway, she replied that she now sweeps under the mat. Uh, and that's just a great illustration of what Paul is, is talking about here. So, in your place of work, do your colleagues know that you're a Christian? And I wonder, how, how do your colleagues perceive the way you go about your work? And I guess here's the six million dollar question. If they know you're a Christian, and they know the way you go about your work, is that a good thing for the Gospel? It's a challenging question to, to think about. And again, there's much more we could say, but time is, is racing away. But I want to just uh, underline that actually the Bible has a really high view of secular work. Sometimes we get it to, in our heads that that full-time, full-time Christian work is the only work that's worth doing. Well, the Bible says that's not the case at all. Some of the heroes of the Old Testament had an amazing impact in their nation and for the kingdom and for, the, for God's people because in God's strength they worked with integrity. Just think of the stories of Joseph and Nehemiah and others like that. So in all these things, the bottom line for Paul is, is that the Christian faith is an everyday faith that impacts the whole of our lives. And maybe you're sitting here this morning finding these, these words quite hard to take on board, quite hard to hear, either because there's, there's guilt that we're feeling over failing in these different areas, or maybe because we just don't believe it. Well, the Bible is, is clear that actually the, the root of our issues with authority come from a deep-rooted rebellion against the ultimate authority in the universe. The, Bible, the consistent message of the Bible is that, that deep down we have a desire to be independent to be our own authority, to be God ourselves. By nature, we want to live in a world where we are completely free from responsibility. A, a world which revolves around us. Where I'm in a relationship for what I can get out of it. Where it's all about me. And the truth is, we're, we're never going to be able to understand and live out the family life that, that Paul describes here without first recognising our need to submit to God's authority and our need to come under his loving, self-sacrificial leadership which is for our ultimate good. He's not going to force us to do anything we don't want to do and he is absolutely committed to our ultimate good. 
And there's nothing more he could do to prove that. He sent his own son to die on Calvary's cross in your place. What more would you want him to do to prove his love for you? Or maybe this morning you need to do that for the first time. And I would strongly urge you to make the most of the opportunity you have this morning to do that. It's only as, as we do that, as we do that day by day, by day by day, that we can truly live up to the standards that Paul holds up here. Because this life of, of submission and, and the sacrificial bearing of responsibility flows from the relationship that we have with God through Christ. It doesn't lead us to that relationship in the first place. It's not by, by living this way and doing these things, it's not by doing those that, that we get right with God. Because we are right with God already that we live this way. And this is absolutely vital for us. Because we're, we're not going to be able to, to live this way in our own strength. No way. So the message of this book, again, is Christ is all. He is supreme. He is sufficient. And it's through him transforming me, through the forgiveness that he has bought for me, through his spirit working inside me, that I can be the husband and father and worker that I ought to be.